Hey, before we start this episode, just want to remind you that the Fearless Woman's Guide to Starting a Business is available everywhere that you like to buy books, and you can get it in paperback, Kindle, and even as an audiobook. I'll have links on where you can purchase in the podcast notes. Okay, back onto the show. You are listening to One Broken Mom, a podcast dedicated to raising awareness about mental health, parenting, and self-improvement. I'm the host, Ami Quirconi. One Broken Mom is not a family show. It is intended for adults only and may contain adult language. Sometimes the topics are serious, but you can count on the episodes to be entertaining. Also, One Broken Mom is not offering any psychiatric or medical diagnosis. We're just here giving away useful and important information. So if you're ready to hear real talk by real people so that we can all get better together, then you're in the right place and welcome. Okay, everyone, welcome back to One Broken Mom. And I am super excited because I have with me this week a guest that I know all of you love because her episodes are the most downloaded that we have on the show. Um, She's been a guest on season one and season two. And so it's pretty exciting. And for those of you watching on YouTube, you get to see Lindsay for the first time today because we've got it set up on Video Connect. And so I'm pretty excited about that. Um, You know, I'm doing the show with her today because many people out there who are listening have definitely identified with the realization that they grew up in a household with emotionally immature parents and maybe in an entirely emotionally immature family dynamic system. And today, some of us have been able to, you know, extricate ourselves out of that dynamic and and maybe cut off um, emotionally as well as physically some of the the elements of that. But then there are several people out there that I know uh, listening that are still immersed in it and maybe even enmeshed in it a bit. And so the topic today, I think, is going to be really important in a lot of ways um, and across the board. Now, you know, as listeners of the show and as people that have been really involved in your own healing with childhood trauma, that the scripts and stories that are stored in our heads are not linear and they're not chronological. In fact, most times they don't seem logical at all. And so while we may have been able to sort out and work on one area of our life really well, we can all get surprised by a new situation that pops up and leaves us feeling like we just took 10 steps backwards in our healing and therapeutic process. And growing up in a household of emotionally immature family members, not even just your parents, doesn't impact us all in the same way. Our own inner workings and the unique array of experiences from our DNA to the other people who we did or didn't have in our lives at certain poignant periods all come together and form the memories that our brains use to access and assess what we have to do next in split seconds beyond our control. And so this means we can get caught off guard if the right buttons are pushed by someone. And I talked about this with another guest recently when we discussed micro boundary violations by manipulative people. And I've studied this topic also outside of the show because the essence of controlling another person and getting them to do what you want is most effective when you're able to disable their cognitive thinking and tap into the primal areas of our brain down deep where that long-term memories are stored and where emotions are born. Now, this understanding can be used for good. It can be used to persuade people to follow beautiful ideas and missions, or it can be used um, with malintent and to manipulate another person into giving up their boundaries and to have them do what you want them to do for your own selfish gains, irrespective of whether or not it's good for that person or not. 
So there's this lifelong vulnerability to this kind of manipulation. And it's not just because some of us have traumas. It is indeed a primal nature of all human beings. Some, however, may fall prey to it more easily than others. And that's why I'm grateful, I've already said this before, to have Lindsay back on the show today. And for those of you that don't know Lindsay, she is the author of Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents. And her newest book is Recovering from Emotionally Immature Parents, Practical Tools to Establish Boundaries and Reclaim Your Emotional Autonomy. So welcome back, Lindsay. Oh, it's great to be back at me. Loved your introduction uh, too, because you really highlighted one of the things that we'll talk about, which is how caught off guard you can be and how quickly these takeovers occur. So thank you for uh, starting us off with that. Oh, well, good. You know, it's not like I don't have a ton of experience to rely on for that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and so, you know, you've been on many times and we've talked about emotionally immature parents a lot, but I, you know, I, I, so I don't want to redefine that because I think that everybody's, you know, when we're here, they're probably have already listened to the show. So they're excited to hear this new one. So we don't need to go back there, but I do want to touch on this. What we're going to talk about today isn't just for an emotionally immature parent, but it's really for any person that's emotionally immature that we're going to experience in our life. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. We just, I call them emotionally immature people. And for shorthand, I call them EIPs, but um, it can stand for either emotionally immature parents or emotionally immature people. But yeah, this is the human condition. So it is not only with parents. Yeah. And I noticed too, that um, obviously in life, um, we, we encounter different people and they have different positions in our life, either children, coworkers, friends, strangers, whatever. And our responses to them also vary uh, to a large degree as well. And so it's what I meant by like dialing back that sometimes we think we figured out one area only to be, you know, a, you know, confronted with a situation that, you know, isn't, isn't present, like present minded as in like we could have predicted that we happened and that's where we come out. And it's usually because those people represent or have some place in a story or script somewhere in the background that we just kind of forgot about until they're there and they're like memories pop up, you know, and again, not at a conscious level or anything. Right. Right. Once you learn something, it does not necessarily generalize to all your experience. Yeah. So one of the things to kind of lay this groundwork is um, you've talked about throughout your books and the work that you do that there's an emotionally immature relationship system. What is this and how do we detect whether or not that's what we're, what we're dealing with? Okay. Well, the way to detect it, first of all, and then I'll explain what it is, but the way to detect it is that you will feel drained and you will feel trapped. Okay. Um, (laughs) The emotionally mature relationship system is really based on what babies and small children do. Um, So if you think about this in terms of it being a normal developmental type of relationship system, as long as you're under four years old, uh, that will help. Because what happens is that babies and small children and emotionally immature people do this thing where they actually depend on other people to help um, sustain their self-esteem and also to regulate their emotions. So the baby shows distress, cries, um, and lets you know that they're feeling bad inside, and that will make you feel bad inside because we all pick up on each other's emotions. So by their behavior making you feel bad, 
you will do anything that you can to calm that baby down or that child down. And that works beautifully in the mother-child relationship or parent-child relationship. However, when people haven't developed their own internal source of self-esteem and they uh, have not developed emotional regulation to a mature degree, they continue to turn to other people to calm them down or make them feel good about themselves. And the way that they do that is by expecting you to do or be what they want. So that's the part that feels very draining because you're always feeling like there's an expectation on you to do something that may not be in alignment with your own energy. So it's, it's, it's always a push me, pull me kind of feeling with them. So that kind of relationship system kicks in at a very subconscious level because all human beings through their nervous systems are geared to respond to that in other people. So you have to be very conscious to elude the impact of the emotionally mature relationship system because we're all hardwired to respond to it. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, it's, it's obviously I'm a parent. I know not everybody that's listening is actually a parent, but you know, that is easy to feel and understand when you're in a, uh, a conflict or conflicted situation with your own child, because the, um, the child is definitely looking to you to help regulate their emotions, whether they're, you know, five years old or 15 years old, like that, mm-hmm. that's still a necessary piece of it. And I know that for me, um, where the challenge is sometimes, and this is a part of the, of the healing process is, feeling I'm not resourced enough to be able to step into that parental role and to help them with that and feeling like I am being drained from it. And again, that comes from the emotionally immature parents that I had that didn't resource for me, you know, way back when and and so on and so forth. Um, And so what you're saying is that, you know, that's a normal part of childhood, you know, that's a normal part of parenting, but adults never grow out of that. They continue to tap into other people for that in a way that a teenager might do it or a seven-year-old might do it. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And it's very, um, it's very acceptable in our society, unfortunately. For instance, if you watch any kind of um, detective show or uh, drama or anything like that, you, you will see a bunch of emotionally immature maneuvers going on where people are controlling and manipulating each other. Um, they're using defenses that upset other people. They're putting people in double binds. Um, they're putting people in situations where they can't say no. Uh, and we find this incredibly entertaining because this is what we're often going through in our real lives. (laughs) Right. So, So unfortunately there's a lot of it out there and sometimes it's, it masquerades as a, like a, a strong persona, like someone who is aggressively demanding that you be a certain way, unfortunately in our society is perceived as being strong or self-confident or um, sort of um, charismatic. Uh, is Char- what I yes, thank you. That's exactly the word I'm searching for, charismatic. And so this gets reinforced. And what we're trying to do um, in my work and your work is we're trying to help people catch it so that they don't fall into this sort of uh, half asleep way of just going with it. And then they get all the way to the end and find out that they've been completely taken over. Right. Now, so that that leads into um, this topic also, which is the distortion field and that EIPs 
see this world through this distortion field. Uh, describe what that what that means, please. Well, the, the, yeah, I love this term because because it's not it's not original. It, this is a colleague of mine uh, who uh, told me that this is how he thinks of it when he has a client who's caught up in one of these situations with an emotionally mature person. The distortion field actually comes from Star Trek. Um, it's when, it's when the enterprise is going into some unknown part of the, of the universe and they say, captain, we don't understand it. Our instruments read that there's nothing there, but we can see that something, you know, and so the distortion field is your own senses and instruments. If you're on the enterprise are not reading the actual reality of what's there. And this is a defensive maneuver by the bad guys on the TV show. So they put up this uh, distortion field so that you can't trust what you see. You have to kind of go with what they want you to see because that's what your, your instruments are going to be reading. So that's what people do um, instinctively uh, in the emotionally immature personality system. Uh, what they end up doing is they create a sense of urgency. The distortion field is all about it being urgent because emotionally immature people hate to wait for anything. They're very impatient and that's related to their low stress tolerance. So because they can't contain a bad feeling without somebody else managing it for them, they will get into a situation where they're demanding that you do what they want, what they think will calm them down. So they really don't come to you with a request for advice or support or to hold their hand through it, companionship. No, they're not looking for that. They've already solved the problem. And the problem will be something that will cost you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so they give you the solution and tell you that you've got to do this because this is such an urgent emergency situation. Mm-hmm. So that's where you get caught up in it. And then you start getting by emotional contagion, which is one of the ways that we co- communicate with each other naturally. But through emotional contagion, all of a sudden it will feel to you like, oh my gosh, we definitely do have to do something for this person. And if we don't, we just have a general sense of, I don't know what will happen, but it'll be something awful. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we, we stop thinking it through. We become passive we become cut off from our own feelings, our own wisdom and inner guidance, our own inner world. And we agree that yes, they are more important than we are. Like in this moment, it doesn't matter that they've called at 12 o'clock at night because they had a fight with their boyfriend. We, we, we kind of end up going with it. It's like we're hypnotized that yes, that is a good reason to call me and wake me up. Um, and now we have to attend to you for the next two hours by talking to you on the phone. It's, it's that kind of thing. So um, in the distortion field, the reality is what gets distorted. Um, they create the reality and they create a sense of emergency around it. So there are no facts that are being revealed. It's nothing but feeling and what they think something meant. So do you want to go into a little bit about how to deal with the distortion field? Yeah, because, you know, my brain right now is thinking, you know, I think it's important for, you know, not everybody needs to be a neuroscientist, but I think the more we actually understand 
what happens in the brain between this flip-flopping between where we're thinking and where facts make sense and where this emotional takeover actually happens, I think is really important for people because once they see that, you know, this isn't a matter of strength or will, you know, these are, this is just the way our brains are designed to act. And so, you know, yeah, please, please continue on with this. I think it's the more we know the better. And along those lines, um, one of the things that, um, that happens when, when you have a, uh, when you've been trained as a child to be passive and acquiescent to whatever the adult wanted you to be or do. And in order to do that, because children are such, such powerful little entities, you know, they're, they're such little individuals. So to get them to unhook from themselves, you have to make them feel very insecure and very scared. And once you do that, you encourage them to be passive and also to disconnect from yourself so that you stop thinking about what you need and what you want or even how you're feeling. You actually go blank. You actually lose touch with yourself. And then they can tell you whatever they want you to be. So what we want to do, the first thing we want to do when we realize that we've been caught up in somebody's urgent uh, distortion field is we want to get back in touch with our inner world, with our inner self, which is exactly opposite from what's being foisted on you. So the first thing that I do uh, in counseling people is to ask the question, are they the most important person in the world? Is the EIP and their problem the most important thing in the world? And that seems like a silly thing to say, because of course it's not, right? But we have stopped thinking if we've dissociated and shut down in response to their pressure. So to get that back um, and stop accepting that they're the most important person is very important. And then the next question is, is this an emergency? I mean, if somebody calls me at 12 o'clock at night because they broke up with their boyfriend, is that an emergency? No. If their house is on fire, uh, if they were just in a car accident, uh, if something happened to one of their family members, okay, that's an emergency. I would consider that an emergency, okay, that I might call my friend for in the middle of the night. But you have to assess their urgency objectively because they won't. They have, if it's bothering them, it's an emergency. So you have to ask yourself, what's the reality? And you'll notice that with all these things, you first have to step back. And you can sort of do visualizations with seeing yourself stepping back and like pushing their energy away from you or turning your back to their energy and walking away from them. These visualizations really help you get back in yourself. So you want to ask yourself, what's the reality? What are the facts? And is their request the best solution to the problem? Because lots of times, no, <laughs> they're not thinking straight. Right. They just can't, they're just imagining what would give me relief. And that will always entail that somebody else does something that they want. So this mm-hmm. is the, you know, the very young quality about this. You can ask yourself too, could they solve it once they calm down? Because lots of times they could, but they're making it sound like they couldn't possibly exist without your intervention. And then you can ask yourself, should this be my responsibility? And do I have an obligation? And the example, one of the examples that I use in the book is um, a client of mine had uh, elderly parents that had 
um, abused and treated her badly throughout her childhood and adolescence. And they decided they wanted to move over to where she was. This was like 2000 miles away and have her take care of them in her old age. Now this was when she had just been diagnosed with a life threatening illness and had teenage children. Okay. She felt like she had an obligation because her, her parents got a burr under their saddle and they felt like they had to have this answer right now. I mean, nothing had changed from one week to the next, but they just got the idea that this had to be decided now. So she felt an urgency and an obligation and you can see the dissociation, right? Because what she needed and how she felt went right out the window Mm -hmm. and she became passive. She agreed that they were much more important than she was. And she was so disconnected from herself, she couldn't think to ask these questions. Like, do I have an obligation? No, she did not. Mm-hmm. And she had a brother, actually, who lived closer to them. I'll just add that, um, who wasn't fighting a, a serious illness. Mm-hmm. So, But it's good to have these things written down because, as you said earlier, I mean, if you don't have it ready, you will tend to stay in those emotional centers of your brain. So writing these things down and keeping them in a drawer somewhere, maybe in your bedside table, if these people call at night, uh, helps you to call up the part of your brain that can still think. So that's, that's um, you, like you said, these things can catch you by surprise. And you, you really don't want to just rely on your memory and your own willpower. You need something kind of in writing or outside yourself to help cue you back into the thinking part of your brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other thing I want to mention about the um, distortion field is that if you have someone in your life that you're dealing with that tends to do this, it's very important to be prepared in advance because as you said, you know, maybe it wasn't the boyfriend problem. Maybe it was the work problem. And so we tend not to generalize our learning, like they'll never get us again on the boyfriend problem. (laughs) But then, oh, well, I don't know what to do if they're having car trouble. Okay. (laughs) So you got to think in advance with your imagination to decide beforehand what you're willing to give. Are you willing to talk at 12 o'clock at night? Are you willing to be woken up? Are you willing to get out of bed and go hold their hand? You know what they tend to do. So you can sit down with a piece of paper and ask yourself, am I willing to do this for them? Because if you can step back and make that decision in advance, then you're prepared for when the next thing happens. But let's say that you don't, you don't come up with the one that they lead with the next time. So then what do you do? Okay. Mm -hmm. You can take your time. Remember I said that they're all, they're always in a state of urgency and emergency. It doesn't feel like you can take your time, but of course you can take your time. You can say, well, that's, that's really hard. I'm sure, but I need some time to think about that. Or I'm not sure right now I'll get back with you. Or I'm so sleepy right now. I couldn't think straight. If I tried, I'll have to call you back in the morning, but you're buying time because time creates distance between you and their emotionally immature relationship system. And then you have time to think about what's the outcome that I want. 
That is what completely gets lost in any of these interactions. The outcome that you want is absolutely not on anybody's radar. Mm -hmm. And you've got to get that back. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that you do that is, you know, by taking your time, but also by not taking their behavior so seriously. So you can become non-committal, like, mm-hmm, oh, oh, uh-huh. Uh, you're not saying anything to agree with them, but you're just sort of acknowledging what they're saying. And then you can be repetitive and persistent about what outcome you want. Like maybe the outcome I want is I'll talk to you about this at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. And, you know, that's the only thing I'm going for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you just repeat, I can't talk about this right now. Um, uh, think of some things you can do to calm down and we'll talk in the morning. Mm-hmm. You're that talking about, you're talking about really, a, a you know, a boundary exercise, which the, um, you know, when you back in the, the conversation, you know, you talked about how compliant, you know, if a child has been groomed to be a compliant and put everything, you know, on, you know, off to the side, because the parents' needs are more important than their own needs, then, you know, we've talked about this before. That means basically then you never learned how to assert or set a boundary that helps define you and what your needs are and your individuality as a human being, even as a child. And, um, and so this exercise of these questions are a way to start setting boundaries for, you know, designed for the people that you have in your life, which I think is, is really, you know, valuable. Um, and, you know, in the time part of this too, gosh, you know, one of the things too is to realize that time actually allows your nervous system to readjust. You know, there's a physical adjustment that actually happens because when that person calls you with a crisis, their crisis, not necessarily a real emergency, your instant reaction is to get into the crisis with them. But then you do have to actually let the body go shift gears, you know, and reverse back out a little bit and then go into the first gear, which is right up here at the front of the brain. So I'm, I'm pointing at my forehead for everybody listening. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that, but that's what time does. You know, time is the regulation, you know, internally that we don't even have to do it. It's beautiful. The body actually can do it on its own if we get into practice and we don't, you know, um, we don't get in the way of it, you know, of it trying to do that, which that emotionally immature person is trying to get in the way with it, whether they realize it consciously or not, right? They want to keep you in the crisis mode and peppering you. And you're saying, just take a breath, Ooh, take a breather, you know, uh, figure what that is and, and get practiced at saying no to that. And also not, you and I talked about this in the last time, not feel like that you're being selfish for mm-hmm. saying no to this, you know, to this attempt at taking over and drawing you into the distortion field that they've created. Yes. And, you know, I wanted to comment on something else that you said, which I, I think, um, Maybe we can uh, reframe to make it a little easier for people to do it. And that is that when you frame this interaction as uh, setting boundaries or setting limits, a lot of people see that as a power move. Like I'm exerting power against you if I set a limit or set a boundary. And they're very uncomfortable with that because they know that these people traipse across boundaries like crazy. And you have to be like, like Superman to keep that out. So if you think of it as setting a boundary, you may uh, feel a little anxious about that because you really don't feel that strong with them. They really have taken over every time. So one of the things that, that I like to do as a reframe for that is to think that you are creating space 
for you to be who you are. And that's a different energy. Instead of it being a pushing you away, it's a pushing me out. So I'm creating space for me. And uh, in one of your previous programs, I mean, you had this wonderful insight that if people don't respect your boundaries, uh, there's something really wrong. And you you demonstrated the the uh, positive uh, response that should happen when you set a boundary, which is they should be curious about that and delighted to get to know you better. <laughs> because it's an intimate act to create space and tell somebody about what's better for you. That should elicit a positive response of delight in getting to know you better. But of course, with EIPs, that's just a nuisance. That's just noise in the system, uh, what you want and, and who you are. Right. So anyway, I just wanted to say that because just think of it like you have a right to have your space and you have a right to have your feelings within that space. And so that that is not being selfish. That's just being a living organism on this planet. Mm-hmm. Okay. It doesn't have to merge with another organism in order to be um, accepted and loved. Mm-hmm. That's, and that's important because again, as you know, in your field and, you know, and I know for the listeners here, no one told us that when they should have told us that, that we have a right to our space, that we have a right to our feelings about something mm-hmm. um, and that, and that we are allowed to express them and hold them because we were surrounded by people that were incapable of, you know, defining themselves separate from us. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that's the whole topic of all of this. And so to learn that and to feel that and not have it put a, a weird tingle in your body when you decide to express, you know, your own needs is, is really hard and it doesn't come easy and it won't come easy. Like it'll be from a constant, you know, constant practice um, of doing it. But, you know, you know, for everybody listening, everybody watching, Lindsay's telling you the same thing here. You have a right to that. So don't let anybody that's trying to manipulate you out of that make you believe that you don't have a right, you know, to, to hold and define who you are and to own that and be okay with that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where do our rights end? You know, our rights end when we're hurting other people, I think, you know, out of malice. But if, if saying who you are and saying, listen, I don't have the energy for a midnight conversation right now, but I adore you and I'll have time for you at 10 AM <laughs> is not a malice act, you know? Right. <laughs> Yes. And if you, um, if you also are observing what they're doing in a dispassionate way, in a, um, uh, a way that allows you to, uh, just see what's happening, that in itself will reconnect with you with yourself. And it will also give you space. As, as soon as you start observing and narrating in your own mind, now they're trying to make their problem my problem. Now they're trying to create a sense of obligation in me. Now they're not listening to the solution I'm willing to offer. Now they're pressuring me to do what they want. When you get the idea or the rhythm of that kind of observation, you are already freeing yourself from that that distortion field and getting some space for yourself. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Now I noticed too, at least in myself, and I can imagine this is going to be different for other people too, that again, there's also a natural response, you know, that we have to, uh, you know, a, a dangerous situation. And I know when somebody's coming in at us with their emotional, you know, attempt to take us over, again, they're, they're triggering primal emotional feelings in us. And the one that gets us kind of set up is, you know, buying into the fact that this is urgent because there's danger. And again, that's air quotes um, because it's not always a dangerous situation. Rarely is it truly dangerous, but the body feels that as this is a, there's maybe danger here. There's fear here. Uh, This person is inciting, you know, that, that energy in me. And we don't all respond to that trigger in the same way. There are people that are the, I need to flee this situation acute or stress response. Mm-hmm. And there are some people that fight those situations when they encounter. And so when we experience these emotional takeovers, I think that there is no right answer to how we feel. Sometimes most of us were taught to freeze regardless of where they were. And that's that trapped feeling. Yes, absolutely. Right? Okay. Yeah, All right. You're not, you're not, nobody has a fence around you. Okay. You're not in a prison, but your nervous system has shut down into a vagal mode that is making you feel paralyzed. Mm -hmm. That's the trap. So you're trying to move yourself out of that vagal mode into something where you have a little more energy and you can think again. Yeah. Yeah. So disassociation then, and you, you've talked, touched on this a little bit, is something that happens to us or can happen to us when we're locked into this emotionally immature relationship system um, where, you know, we are detached. And it's a strategy, I think, that the EIPs use. They want us to disassociate from our true self, or it can happen probably subconsciously, right? We, we, we might, if we get drawn into this it might just happen. How do we, how do we recognize that maybe that's what's going on? I know you, you provided questions on escaping the distortion field, but when do we know that we need to like pull back and that we aren't, you know, in our state? You have to go into it knowing that you have to pull back. Um, Because if you wait until you're in the interaction, for the most part, they are so much better at, at inducing this feeling, whether it's fight, flight or freeze then you are at protecting yourself. It's not even funny. Mm-hmm. So you have to go in prepared. This is, this is not, this should not catch you by surprise that they will treat you this way, right? <laughs> if you've had this relationship with them, uh, if you go in prepared, that is the, the most important thing. The second thing is that as soon as you begin to feel like I can't get a word in edgewise or God, how long do I have to stay here or anything like that that indicates that trap feeling is beginning? You have to act fast because your brain, if you've been conditioned to do this in childhood, your brain will go into that shutdown and then you're, you're just a dead duck. I mean, you're just sitting around waiting for them to be finished with you. Okay. So it's important to act fast and it's important to take some kind of action. Um, and also rehearse in advance what you might do if they were to start this again. Mm -hmm. So nobody is good enough to be immune to this as it's happening and as it goes on in time. So you have to be prepared with how do I get, how do I get out of this physically? Because sometimes that's the only thing that stops the dissociative process. So you create breaks, you go outside, you say, oh, I have a work call at 
10 o'clock or whatever. Um, I need to go to the bathroom. Um, you stand up and look out the window and ask about the neighbor's yard. I mean, you do things that break the interaction and that sort of gives you a chance to get back into your thinking brain. But if you spend, if you think that you're going to go for an extended visit or listen to them for a couple of hours and then kick in with creating your space, that's going to be extremely hard to do. You have to act fast. You have to be prepared and you have to um, create that space early as early in the process as you can. Mm -hmm. Well, and we've talked about this many times, different guests, even with you and I on this, uh, your body is your first sign. Mm -hmm. You know, and you feel it in your, you'll feel it in your body, that moment of that takeover beginning or, you know, the hijack happening is another term that gets, you know, used. Um, And so, you know, sometimes we get hijacked in situations, not necessarily because it's the manipulations of an emotionally immature person, but just because it's a a really hard conversation at work that's getting ready to happen and somebody says something and, you know, and it just triggers you, but it's the feeling in wherever. And so if anybody, you know, that's listening and watching this, you know, hopefully you are beginning to understand what your signals are because I know people have different signals. I've heard people that feel it in their jaw clenches up, you know, instantly mine's the flutter in the chest and the tightening in the chest is how I know that, you know, the trigger has happened. And, um, and so what you're saying is that as soon as that happens, as soon as that physical, cause it is, it's again, our nervous systems are flooding us with chemicals. This is as easy as it gets people. You know, there's no mystery here. As soon as the body starts pushing through, you know, all the, the hormones through the system, um, you feel it instantly. And once you realize that that's what's going on, then you know that you can kind of redirect because I was going to say that, you know, getting caught up in a distortion field and then trying to change it while you're in the middle of it is impossible. You can't re-communicate with this person and convince them with facts that their view of the, of the issue, the problem, the crisis or whatever is, you know, incorrect or unreal. Right. I mean, there, it's a distortion field. That's why the word works for a reason. And I know from experience, and I know you know this from experience, the distortion fields can be extremely magnetic. You know, if they've, if the person has done it, sometimes we can see them coming. Like, you know, there's a big black hole to coming towards us and we can avoid that. But sometimes when we do get drawn into them, you know, kind of unintentionally and unexpectedly, we do have to find a way of of breaking out. And so, you know, I'm I'm glad you touched on that, that the breakout is as soon as you feel it run, you know, whatever that might, you know, might have to look like for you. Yeah, because nothing can escape, not even light. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Exactly. It's a lot of physics today on our conversation (laughs) in Star Trek. (laughs) So, so what are some of the reasons we end up becoming vulnerable to this? You know, not everybody, you know, not everybody has the same degree of vulnerabilities to these takeovers, but like we talked about, it is a human thing. It's not a, it's not a sign that you're a broken person or that you've got some sort of emotional damage or trauma, not necessarily, but everybody's, you know, is a vulnerable to these takeovers. And so what, what kind of, what happens here? I mean, what, what helps us, you know, become you know, willing or unwilling, I guess, to some of these actions and behaviors? Well, uh, when we're little, our reality is taught to us um, by the people that we're around. Um, Our values are taught to us. And this may not be explicit. It's just the way that um, we read other people's behaviors and situations as they're occurring. But if every time I express something that I think that is different from what daddy thinks and daddy goes red in the face and looks very upset or slams his fist on the table or sends me to my room, 
uh, I, no one has spelled out to me uh, this in terms of dad's distortion field and, and my loss of personal space and my loss of right to be myself. Nobody has to explain that. I get it. I get it. Okay. And I'm a little person, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, three or four feet tall and I'm living in a world of giants and I'm often living in a world of immature giants, which is even worse. And so I will pick this up as what I need to do to feel safe. And oftentimes that will be to give in, uh, to start questioning and self-doubt myself, uh, to maybe feel guilty or feel fear or anxiety because these are warning signals that help me not make them angry with me. Or if I, um, if I have an idea and I share it with mom and she suddenly goes cold and turns away from me and won't speak to me for a day or so, ah, you know, I learn that I need to think twice. I need to think what I think, but then I need to think immediately what would mom or dad or whoever it is, Mm -hmm. what would they think about this? So I'm always thinking twice about anything that's really going on inside me. And that training it gets in there at such a uh, deep level um, in the, in the brain and our, in our memory that that tends to run us in automatic situations. So basically what, what we're doing and, you know, like in your program, my books, we're trying to raise the consciousness and the awareness of people, which is in the front part of your brain, because that really can create a different set of circumstances in your emotional centers in your brain with practice. Mm-hmm. You can rewire things and select different responses, but you can't do it if you're not conscious of what's going on. And I think that's what's been popular about the emotionally immature idea is that people, it clicks with them because they've always known that their father or mother was acting like a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, they recognize that um, it doesn't feel like they're acting like a grown up. So we do, we just get trained into uh, learning how the world works through those early relationships. And unfortunately, um, that, that can be uh, pretty distorted. The other thing I was going to say, Amy, is that um, in the book, I talk about the drama triangle, which is this set of roles that is presented to us as uh, a way of understanding any upsetting situation. And in the drama triangle, you get to play one of three roles. You can be the villain or the aggressor. You can be the victim or you can be the rescuer, the hero. Okay. So usually people that have emotionally immature parents who suffer from it, um, don't just act that, but they internalize it. They see themselves as having the obligation to be the rescuer. Okay. They will find, however, that as soon as they act as the rescuer, they will get inside that triangle and then, then they will end up being either the victim or being seen as the aggressor. It's, it's a very frustrating kind of circumstance where you're like, I was just trying to help <laughs> or no, no good deed goes unpunished. It's because emotionally immature people take on these very simplistic roles and they're highly emotional and so once you get into their system, this is why you have to be prepared in advance so you don't just wander into it, 
that's the way that they're going to frame it. You need to rescue me or you're a meanie aggressor who won't help me, the victim, or any permutation of that. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's very important that you step out of that rescuer role and not take on the, the obligation, that's air quotes too, mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to save anybody because it, it never gets, that triangle never gets better. Mm-hmm. It seems like there's probably a good activity for folks that are listening that um, are, are experiencing this, like, you know, here's the coaching part of me coming out, which is, you know, sit down and take a look at your circle of people, figure out the ones that give you that kind of trapped feeling and the one that you know that you're experiencing them and kind of inventory what those experiences are like with them. You know, where do you find yourself, you know, because they do have repeating patterns, you know, they, they tend to, uh, you know, I noticed at least for me is that I had the same issues with the, with the different people, right? Like this person was, you know, issues A through Z and this person was one through three and this person was over here. And, and there is a predictable nature to some extent with what they're at and that to pull back and start to kind of objectify those interactions and, um, and put them on paper, journal them, talk, you know, write them out and, and then do this exercise. Like, okay, when they come at me in these situations, you know, now I know I'm pre-planning ahead of time, how I'm going to handle it because they're not going to surprise me. You know, I, I think we get surprised the first time, right? But then after that, it's really not a surprise. The only surprise is the fact that we find ourselves getting ourselves you know, allowing ourselves to be caught back up in it again and again and again, but they, they do tend to feel like they're the same, the same drama, the same issue. Maybe it's a different boyfriend, but it's always a boyfriend problem. And maybe it's a, you know, this, but it's always the same argument. It's always the, you know, whatever. And so I think that that, um, might be, I would, you know, advise, I don't know if you would agree with that, but that might be a good activity for somebody to, for, I love that. I love that. Yeah. Um, the other thing I was going to mention is, when you get into a situation where you're beginning to uh, feel taken over and, and maybe you're not prepared, maybe this wasn't one of the people that you were anticipating. Okay. So if it's okay, I'd like to just give a couple of suggestions mm-hmm. for things that people can do when, when they're caught off guard. Oh, totally. Please. Okay. So one of them is to be slippery and to sidestep. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we all, you know, feel like we have to give an answer. It has to be a yes or a no. We have to either capitulate or defy. We have to be either aggressive or sweet. I mean, no, you don't have to respond in any kind of committed way to anything that happens in a conversation. Okay. You can be slippery like an eel. Okay. You can think of an eel just sort of slipping through the water and nothing attaches to it because the eel isn't turning around and creating a, uh, you know, a, a place for anybody to push against. It's just kind of going with the flow. So you might say things like, I don't know. I mean, that is like something that people who have been cast in the rescuer role never think to say. Mm-hmm. I don't know what to do about that. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly freeing. It ought to be in everybody's back pocket. <laughs> the thing they can say is, I can't really answer that right now. Well, why can't you? I just can't. Um, I guess I don't have anything to say about that right now. And, and that, that is, tends to be sort of a, a stopping thing to say because people aren't probably used to you not offering help and they're not used to um, they're not being some sort of committed response to what someone says back to them, whether it's good or bad. 
You can also agree with their feelings, but not their demands. You can say, I know you'd like an answer right now. Or I guess you're pretty upset with me for that. Or I know you think I'm making a mistake. I know it must be hard to understand why I'm not able to help right now. So you're agreeing with their feelings, which tends to calm them down. Okay. But you're still leaving it open because you haven't committed to stepping in and rescuing the situation. You can also be prepared um, in the back of your mind to lead the interaction. And sometimes that can be as um, um, ungraceful as saying, oh my gosh, hold on a second. I need to check something. Okay. You're not checking anything, but it's a way of interrupting the hypnosis that's starting to happen. So you're leading the interaction or you may ask them a question that takes it down a slightly different path. You're just being the relationship leader. You can also um, interrupt with um, fantasy uh, where you begin to imagine something that you uh, wish they were saying or you would like for them to do. It's all happening in your mind. But the point is that it's taking you out of the present moment of the interaction and you're free in your mind to have your own thoughts. You can also um, refuse to discuss certain things. Let's say you have someone that wants to call and talk about other family members. Now that can be right there. We're talking about a value that is preset and something that you've decided that with nobody, are you going to discuss maybe a, a mutual friend or a family member, any kind of triangling that feels uncomfortable. And so when you do that, each time that they bring it up, you can refuse to go on with that. And then if they keep talking about it or they say, well, who else do I have to talk to about this? You can say, I don't know, but I have to go now. And that teaches that we're not going to talk about this stuff. One person did that with her mom repeatedly. It has to be repeated many times. It is not learned in one um, one um, boundary setting. And the mother then finally, after several hangups, started to talk about a family member and then said, oh, that's right, you won't talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> and probably didn't say it very nicely the first time either. <laughs> right, but there was a... Uh, the part that worked was that she had finally, she was disappointed. She was irritated, you know, mm -hmm. with the person, but it worked in the sense that she stopped doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, those are, those are amazing too. Cause I, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about was when, you know, somebody is in a situation where they have to deal with uh, an EIP on a regular basis. And, you know, before the, the interview started here, I was uh, sharing with Lindsay an email um, that I had just gotten from a listener just, you know, in the last couple of days, who's struggling um, right now with communication with a parent, a live-in parent and, uh, and trying to figure out how to, how to have an engagement that is um, healthy and solid for her and, her, and it allows her to be herself, but then also um, begins to reframe the relationship, you know, with, um, with this parent in a way um, without it being conflict and fight, 
you know, because when you don't give in to the, the will and you don't allow that takeover to happen, you know, it is not, and I know you and I talked about this in the last episode, it is not uncommon for the reaction from that person to really be angry with you, mm-hmm. you know, or to guilt and shame you, you know, into changing your boundaries. And again, we, you know, for folks that have grown up with these dynamics and have the script written into our head, taking a deep breath right there. That's a hard thing to get over that feeling that there is obligation in air quotes, that there is, you know, that you are acting selfish. And, you know, I know you and I have said this before and we keep saying it over and over again for people to hear this. It is not selfish, you know, to sit there and say that this is, you know, this is where I end and where you begin and they are not, you know, integrated there together and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, And so those are really good, uh, you know, good things for people to, to think about. Um, you know, and I think about emotional takeovers, I think sometimes the show is an emotional takeover because we do talk about topics that I know feel triggering for people. I've heard this from folks too, that when they listen to these shows, their emotions are rising. My emotions rise doing these conversations. Like Mm -hmm. I, you know, point out that we talk about topics that cause that, you know, uh, that emotional sense to come up, but then balancing it by, drawing us very comfortably and gently back into a thinking situation and then providing knowledge, information, you know, facts, data, whatever it is that we need to do, I think also helps us cement this new change in us, you know, a lot easier for everybody. So, um, you know, there is a power, like I said, at the beginning of this, that, you know, triggering into us and tapping into the emotion has really good reasons for that. That's why it is a part of who we are as humans. There are good outcomes to it. And part of that is, is let's feel the discomfort of the situation that we're in. And then let's talk about how we stop that from happening. But you kind of have to feel it and then move forward and transition to the front of the brain, which is really what this whole conversation was about. It's how to get out of that, move forward and regain control so that you can assess and be more self-aware of your situation. Um, yeah. And every time that you do that, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's creating new pathways in your brain. So when you listen to or watch a show like this, even though you're, you're not in it in the sense of you're not in the immediate situation with the EIP person, um, but you are getting to practice by trying on, you know, these examples that we've used, they do stir up the same emotions. They do kind of put you back in it. But every time you experience that and you're thinking and you're trying on some new values and some new uh, norms, that is laying down pathways in the brain. So everything works toward that good result. Yeah. I just got goosebumps with you saying that because that I think that's why this show, my, my conversations with you have really landed with people is because of that, of that this does give everybody a sense that there's this balance of talking about a topic that a lot of people don't talk about, frankly, honestly, and then, um, but then yet bringing that back to an intelligent place of where there's something to do. Like there's some practical skill experience information that allows us to, to move past that. Um, and so, how do we continue to shore up our defenses then against these hostilities? I mean, what are these, you know, we've talked a little bit about this, these preparations, you know, it does work better if we do have some, um, uh, strengthening between these encounters so that we become more resistant to them and ideally be able to find a way to eliminate them. I mean, it it will be impossible to never run into an EIP. They're everywhere. (laughs) 
Um, but it, you know, detecting them, detecting it in ourselves, knowing how to like, you know, like you said, escape situations sooner than later, avoiding the, the takeover to begin with. Uh, you, do you have any other advice for people to do in between, you know, these encounters that they might have for them to, to yeah. you know, build this up? Yes. Anything that increases your connection with your inner world, that's the key. Because one of the things, there's a, a different chapter in the book um, about how hostile, emotionally immature parents are to their children's inner worlds. Chapter six, I believe. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite chapters. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what happens is that when the child shares their feelings or their thoughts, and these are all demonstrations of their individuality, their differences from their parents. When they do that, the parent often will mock that, ridicule that, disagree with that, punish that. And so it, it starts to break down the child's confidence in what they know and what they want. And they become self-doubting because they haven't gotten an affirming response from someone who's interested in their developing individuality. And so it's so important. I mean, whatever it takes for you, whether it's um, mindfulness, reading, watching inspiring programs, uh, journaling is huge. That's a great thing to do. Talking with friends about these kind of relationship uh, awarenesses. Anything that you do that strengthens your bond with yourself, you can think of it as getting to know and caring for your inner child so that you have a relationship with the parts of yourself that need your help. Um, that and Anything that takes you into the interior world and allows you to think about what you want, what kind of outcome you want. All this is coming from the inner world. As you do that, you have a place to be when you're confronted with a, a emotional, emotionally immature takeover situation. You go back into a place in yourself that you have prepared for yourself. You've got to got to make a home for yourself inside yourself. Mm -hmm. If you don't do that, it's like people. It's like living in a house with no doors. People walk in and out and they take your furniture and they take your food and they bring in stuff that you don't want. And they take out stuff you do want. So when you create that inner home, you will be prepared because it will feel bad to you when people start doing these, these uh, takeover maneuvers. And from that, you will want to create your space and set your boundaries. So that would be the, the most important thing that I would encourage people to do. And there's so much good stuff out there now to connect people up with their inner worlds. Mm -hmm. Yoga, mindfulness, self-help books, podcasts. <laughs> you know, we really are very, very lucky that we live in a time when all this stuff is, is being uh, looked at like this. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I definitely agree. So... Well, Lindsay, I, again, goosebumps, I just, I value and appreciate you so much. I'm so grateful for this experience to be able to have you on the show and talk to you like this. I, I mean, I just, I, I can't say it enough how thankful I am that we've connected and that you, that you do this with me and you do this for the listeners. Um, but again, like I said, you are the uh, most popular guest that I've had on the show. And so when you want to come back on, oh my gosh, you just, my heart sings. Um, <laughs> and, and like I said, I'm also excited that to actually be able to see you, um, for yeah. the first time yeah, since we started doing this. Well, it's, it's my pleasure. And, and I have to say that um, the work that you're doing, I mean, is 
so helpful because it not only just the topic, but you go into stuff in such depth that I think people really, uh, really like and enjoy understanding the the deeper parts of it. And that's why I enjoy being on your program so much because we get to talk about this, this very inner stuff that's so real, but we've been taught that it isn't real. And so uh, I just appreciate you so much. And, and, you know, for the listeners out there, I listen to Emmy's program as well. Because <laughs> even as a clinical psychologist, uh, I still get very good stuff from her guests and from her. So, awesome. So Thank fun. you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to One Broken Mom. You can find podcast notes on my website at amiquiricone.com. And there I'll provide all links to all of the resources that we mentioned on the episode. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for other episodes, feel free to send me an email. And if you are interested in sponsoring the show, I'd love to have you be a part of the team. Finally, if you like what you hear, please share the podcast and leave a review so that others can find it. We are all here to get better together. I am the host, Ami Kirkoni, and as always, I am super grateful to have you as a listener. Until next time, have a great day.